So I do not talk about myself that often. Um, I talk a lot, um, as any of you who've been unfortunate enough to be near me know, but <laughs> I don't talk about myself much, and that's something I recently re-realized this past week when I was talking with a group of friends at our weekly missional community meeting. Um, Chelsea, my lovely wife who has escaped the room, <laughs> um, uh, brought up a pretty significant biographical detail from my life in the conversation that was happening. And, and one of my, my closer friends actually was like, oh, I had no idea about any of that. Um, and I kind of paused and looked around the room. And you know, here's this group of people that I love and I care about and I feel like know me pretty well. And I mean, besides my wife and maybe one or two other people, like none of them knew about that. None of them really knew about any of it. Um, and so. Here's a story from my life. Uh, when I was 14 or 15, my brothers and I went into the foster care system. Um, my father was presently on the run from law enforcement, and my mother had literally joined a carnival and figuratively fallen off of the face of the earth. Uh, and so into the system we went. Uh, no one wanted or could take all three of us at the same time, so we were partially separated. And the householders that I stayed with, like all foster parents, were financially compensated by the state for housing us. Um, and I can't recall the exact numbers, but it was something like 800 or 900 bucks a month for me. And I remember that because that was above the usual baseline rate. Because as a teenage boy, I was the least desirable demographic uh, in existence to invite into one's home. And so they got paid more. Um, and so the, the net effect of it, I mean, some people have terrible stories from the foster care system. Mine, pretty manageable. Um, but I had a number engraved onto my soul by the state of Washington, $900 a month, because who you are, what you are, no one would accept you for less. And I don't tell you that story because therapy is expensive, although it is, um, but because I want to talk to you today about pain and loss and the kinds of grief that make healing seem impossible. Um, and because when it comes to looking like I'm okay, that uh, I'm unwounded by life, every day functionally I lie with my silence. So today, at least, integrity requires confession, and in my case, from many wounds, do I still bleed. And so in, in our grief, we can come to a place within our hearts that is hopeless. That's just something that happens to people. We become immune, resistant to comfort. Uh, we, we can come to a place where we emotionally disbelieve the promises of God, even if intellectually, even if here, we're officially on board with them. Yes, God, we believe. Help my heart do so. Um, there's a deadening of our nerves, a graying of the colors in our souls that makes any offer of restoration of healing seem pointless. Because at that point, you don't care enough anymore. Things will get better someday, so you can remove some bad things, add some pleasant things, but whatever, the losses are still etched there deep in your soul. You can't move and leave behind the city you grow up in because it follows you. You can't add some fiber to your diet and a yoga class to your day and fix broken relationships and our tears, no matter how sincere, do not bring back the dead. And so, as a disclaimer, this isn't therapy today, yours or mine. It isn't a seminar on how to process grief. I'm not qualified and I don't know all the stories in this room. Some are probably weirder and worse than mine. Um, others probably, hopefully, <laughs> 
by God's grace, less so. But I'm confident that if you've lived any amount of time in this fallen world, you carry within you some scars from the fight of having done so. Um, and I have no particular desire to stir up old wounds this morning, but if pain is indeed a megaphone, as C.S. Lewis has suggested, then I think it better to be deafened in the presence of God's word than alone in the deep watches of the night in a numbed and hopeless silence. And so let's go to God's word. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. Um, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. So Isaiah 49, starting in verses 13 and 21, or through 21. And um, man, this section is, it's, it's God speaking a word of hope and comfort to a people from whom all comfort and hope have fled. Um, so, if you will, let's, let's read this together. You can find it while I find it. There we go. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who have laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought these up? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Dear God, help us to hear today. Help me to speak. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just very quickly, trying to get some context about where we are in, in the midst of Scripture, because anytime we're doing a one-off thing, you just kind of jump into the middle of something. Um, but just looking at this uh, Isaiah 49, the whole chapter, not just our little bit in the middle, um, the prophetic message which Isaiah has recorded here for us seems to describe or anticipate a dark situation for those who will receive it. God's people are exiled, scattered, hated by the nations which have crushed them and now rule over them, prisoners in darkness, thirsty, hungry, people who have watched their children die and now have nothing. And the structure of this chapter is interesting to me. Um, it opens with one of the famous servant songs in Isaiah. If you're a theology nerd, you know about those. They're really neat. But um, God talking about his servant. And, uh, and no one gets it exactly, but at 700 years before he's born, here's Jesus talking about who he is and what he's going to do. And so, like, I mean, if you're rocking a red-letter Bible, like, there should be some red in this chapter. There isn't because red-letter Bibles won't make the bold calls. But <laughs> they should. Um, and so into this dark situation of exile and suffering, uh, God's like, not only will Jesus save you, he's going to save the whole world. 
You're utterly hopeless. You need hope. Here it is. You may not get it completely yet, but here's the answer to pain, to sin, to suffering, to death, my servant, my son, Jesus. That's essentially the first 12 verses of this chapter. And so verse 13 is a call to respond to this. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And here's the thing. Most of the time, this is where the sermon ends, right? That's, there's the problem. Okay, we've got pain, suffering, exile, complete and utter bereavement. And here's the answer. Jesus is coming and he's mighty to save. And sometimes you've got to work a little to get there, you know, tease it out. But this is easy. We're in the Old Testament. Jesus is like, present. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of handed to us. We can put the chairs on the tables, you know, tally the receipts and go home early. Um, most days. But some days that's just not enough. Some days something in our heart lingers even after we have heard that very true, very powerful message of hope. Uh, in the face of this great promise on which all of our hopes rest in response to this beautiful call for the heavens and the earth themselves to sing for joy in the face of so great a salvation, some days, Lord's people don't respond with singing. Verse 14, the city of Zion, Jerusalem itself personified, speaks for the hearts of God's people, and it replies, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And actually, if, if you look at the passage there, the, the first Lord is, is God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord, my King, has forgotten me. The second Lord is that, that word, uh, Adonai, which is Lord. Uh, we, the word does double duty for us, but, but God's name is personally invoked here. God has forsaken me. My King, my Lord, has forgotten me. And so the gospel has just been spoken, but tragically it has not yet been heard. These, these words of comfort and compassion have fallen onto hearts so scarred by pain and loss and hopelessness that all they can muster in response is disbelief. The Lord will say if he doesn't care. God loves you. He's forgotten me. The, um, the Greek philosopher Aristotle once famously described human, humans as rational animals. Um, and many people have you know, taken issue with him over that description through the years. Um, me personally, theologically, I'm opposed to categorizing us with the animals. And experientially, I'm opposed to categorizing us as rational. <laughs> uh, being, because rationally, we're done here, right? The all-powerful God of the universe, whose purposes shall always and forever stand, has declared comfort. So be comforted, dang it. <laughs> and yet, comfort can elude us. And I think in part that's because we're more than minds. We're creatures of the heart as well, of great highs and lows in our emotions. And the thing is, I don't think that's an accident or an afterthought. It's part of who God made us to be, of what we were always intended to be. And so God, in his kindness, takes great effort to speak to this part of us as well. Um, I love reading the commentary by the, the great reformer John Calvin. And it's funny because he gets ornery at this part. Isaiah 49, verse 14, John Calvin gets his dander up. Um, and if you're at all familiar with John Calvin, you know it takes a hint of Romish popery usually to get there. Uh, <laughs> but but the, he launches into a mini-sermon here on how we need to trust God and avoid such wicked thoughts as expressed in verse 14 and to, to resist uttering such speeches which proceed from the fountain of distrust. Um, 
he was French and lived in Switzerland, so that's probably not his accent. But <laughs> what's interesting to me, though, is that exactly one verse later, that is not how God responds to this, this heartbreaking, heartbroken confession and, yes, accusation against his goodness. God does not scourge the grieving. As, as we look at God's reply, I want to come back again and again as many times as is appropriate to three related questions. Does he care? Can you see it? And how can it be? And it's my hope that in the asking and answering of those three questions, we may, in the doing of it, come to a deeper understanding of and experience with the heart of God. Because these three questions run through our passage. Verse 13 and 14 set up the issue. In the midst of suffering, death, and loss, the people are called to praise and rejoice in response to the proclamation of salvation. This to the people who would watch the soldiers of Babylon hurl their children to their deaths from the walls of Jerusalem. Can you see them singing? Can you see it? In that moment, they can't. How can it be? It can't. At least they think so. Does God care? You heard their response. He's forgotten. And I don't think we're exempt from those questions or those feelings. Um, it's likely that few, if any of us, have been in so objectively dark a night of the soul as Isaiah's intended audience. And yet, being alone at the bottom of the darkest places within yourself, um, it's a necessarily a subjective experience. I think our culture sometimes has a bad habit of psychologically forbidding the experiencing of sorrow so long as someone somewhere has ever had it worse. Um, but knowing that there are deeper holes out there somewhere rarely does anything to make the one you're in any brighter. I don't think any of us have been spared the effects of living in a fallen world. Death has taken family from some of us. Friends and loved ones have been stolen from us by addictions. Uh, for some of us, illness has hobbled us or the people we love. Uh, when, when joy and sunshine bid us to stand and run, our bodies say, no, no, you can't. There are broken marriages, there are broken families, broken hearts, broken dreams. And those are just the stories I know from this very small room. So whether you weigh your pain as great or small in the course of human history, I don't think it matters. We all come to a place where comfort seems hollow, where a call to joy and celebration means nothing to us, where we wonder if God remembers us or if he even cares at all. And so God answers that. He says, yes. Yes, I care. And so, picks up in 15. What does he say? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In trying to help us understand himself, God uses a lot of metaphors and analogies throughout the Bible. Some are really awesome. Um, some are hilarious. Um, all of them are profound. And one of the big ones he goes by is, is, is a father. Uh, so much of who God is and how he relates to us is 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 captured by that idea, and yet he breaks the mold and does not go with that here. Uh, he goes with an image of himself as a mother, uh, which is a big play, but God is, God is secure enough in his masculinity to the extent that that's appropriate. <laughs> He's chosen his pronouns. It's 2018. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very off track right now. <laughs> 
But he doesn't go with father this time. His go-to analogy, he goes the other direction because today in this moment, that doesn't cut it. It doesn't go deep enough. And so um, I'll just appeal to the mamas in the room to back me up a little bit here. Um, giving birth is a pretty memorable experience. Uh, we have drugs to help with that these days, <laughs> but still it's pretty memorable. Um, and meeting your little one for the first time is memorable. Uh, and even if the details of any particular events get fuzzy, while any shred of life, any bit of your sanity remains in you, are you going to forget that person, that child you've given birth to? And if you've been blessed and given the ability and had the opportunity to nurse that child and you've looked down the little eyes look up, do you forget that person? Can you see it? Can you see the picture God is painting here? And, and I can't think of any bond in the human uh, experience that's stronger than this, save one, and it's here in Isaiah 49. And it is the love of God for you. God says, even these, holding this up, even these may forget you, but I will not. Should the day come that every bond of love and loyalty be broken among mankind, every right instinct suppressed, every sacred blessing profaned, though every man be a liar, God remains true, and he will remember his love for you, even at the bottom of that dark, dark pit where you've forgotten everything, including yourself. Does he care? Yes. And I ask, can you see it? But how can it be? How can it be that we are not forgotten? God continues, behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. The, uh, the word for engraved here is a great Hebrew word. Um, it sounds like a violent and vigorous attempt to dislodge something really unpleasant from your throat. Um, so I won't attempt it here because like, someone will give me the Heimlich. But, but it has this deep, rich uh, depth of meaning. Um, its most basic meaning is to cut in. Um, and because when you, when you cut into rock, you engrave, you inscribe, you set something down, you make it known, you declare it. It's this act of rulership. And, and all that to say that when in the midst of tragedy we wonder if God remembers us, his answer is that we have been cut into his hands. And he says that furthermore, however we might feel, however things might be going, the walls of our city, which, you know, our safety, our security, uh, our well-being, his eyes are set upon them. Does God care when we are besieged, when our gates are about to fall, when we are certain that we are completely alone and all hope is lost, across the way, in the distance, God stands, his eyes fixed on the walls of our city with our names cut into his hands. That's what he's telling us here. Can we see it? God's broken people resisted comfort because they thought God did not love them, had forgotten them. And he doesn't crush that bruised reed when he comes to it, but instead he expresses his love for them his devotion to them in some of the most clear and powerful ways in all of Scripture. Does he care? Their souls are downcast, their eyes are downcast, and because of it, they can't see what is happening. Those who destroyed them are retreating. Those who will restore them are coming swiftly. To the people who've lost their children with their souls downcast and their eyes downcast, God cries out, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Can you, 
Can you see the picture, the outrageous, <laughs> ridiculous, lavish, insane picture being painted in verses 18 through 20? To people who had lost everything and everyone, God says, look up and see, they're coming back to you. You will be restored. Your totally empty city is about to not have enough room in it. To, to parents crushed by the haunting sounds of a house gone completely silent, God says you will hear their voices again. And when you do, bear with me, church. When you do, they'll be saying, add another story to the house. There's not enough room for all of us. Not only has what was lost been found, but somehow at the end of it, people will end up with more than which they started with. How can that be? And, and so it's, it's funny because this is an honest reaction, right? When it ends, then you'll say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was braved and barren, exiled and put away. But who's brought these up? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Honey, didn't we have like only four kids when all this started? Where, where did these others come from? And... You know, I mean, for those of us presently raising small children, arguably, that's uh, not a blessing. <laughs> but, but, um, but in the context, how profound. How can it be? And as far as Isaiah 49 goes, I, th I think we'll stay there for now. Um, the passage goes on a little further, um, but it ends up asking a new question that I didn't really want to take time to, to tackle today along with everything else we're doing. Um, essentially, the question is, can he save? Uh, short answer, yes, just so you're not left hanging. Um, the people look you know, at the forces arrayed against them. And they're like, man, can God save us from these great rulers and powerful kings? And God's just like, yes, I'll save you. And the people keeping your children from you. The lucky ones I will make eat dirt and the unlucky ones I will make eat themselves. And it's like, whoa, God just got real. <laughs> um, so, you know, and so like I said, we're not going to go there because it's a new question. Um, but, but don't think we stopped because today we're talking about the love of God and that's the wrath of God. Um, all of this is about his love for you. Um, your name's still engraved in his hand when he takes up the sword. But how can it be? How can this healing this restoration of every wound, every loss, no matter how catastrophic, how can it be? After so much death, after so much loss, and God has, I think in this chapter, told us if through our grief we could hear it, how it can be. I don't think it coincidental that the Son, the, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God Himself, Jesus, is shown to us, to God's people in this very chapter, because there is no answer to such great loss outside of Christ. There is no healing, no resurrection, no restoration. In, uh, in John 16, which we heard read earlier together this morning, as the cross draws near, Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples. And what does he say to them? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into our world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And, and in the Gospel of John, almost without exception, when Jesus speaks of the hour, he's speaking about his coming death. 
his hour had not yet come at the wedding in Cana. They told the woman at the well in Samaria that the hour was coming when everyone would worship in spirit and truth. A mob tried to grab him at one point, but they failed because his hour had not yet come. Um, as the cross drew near, he prayed to the Father, should I ask that this hour depart from me? No. And at the end of the Last Supper, after Jesus, Judas had already fled to betray him, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed to the Father and said, The hour has come. And so it did. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Or put another way, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I think sometimes, uh, like a soldier who's, who's won a great peace for his people, um, it is so scarred by the fires through which he has passed that he is himself unable to enjoy it. It can seem to our hearts like there is, at some point, a tipping point of evil and pain in the world that somehow invalidates hope. Even if it will get better later, after that point, who cares? And the book of Hebrews instead tells us that despising its shame, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. How can that be? So I would say, my brothers and sisters, is your soul downcast? I implore you, lift up your eyes and see the Son of God lifted up with your name cut deep into his hands. Lift up your eyes and see by faith. What Jesus saw is his hour drew near, and that was you. Racked by the birth pangs of death and hell and sin and judgment warring in his body and soul. Yes, there was sorrow. Absolutely. But he fixed his eyes on the coming joy, enduring, waiting for that glorious moment, that brief silence after the pain, when suddenly a cry pierces the birthing chamber and all the pain is forgotten. Because you live. And yes, all of that is to the glory of God. And praises be to our Creator, our Savior, our King. But I would urge you to not put a bunch of artificial space that God doesn't put there between you and your salvation as if God himself valued the one but not the other. You are his glory and his joy. Can you see that? John Calvin was not entirely wrong. We should trust God. If you don't repent of that, God cares. He remembers you. He can save. He will save. You can trust him. If your mind tends toward the analytical, but the, uh, and the, but the rational isn't comforting you like you think it should, <laughs> um, I, I would encourage you to spend some time in the love of God, which tends a different part of your soul here and feel and experience the poetry and passion in God's word and water those deep gardens of your heart with more than propositions and proofs. If the weight of the scars you bear seems too heavy to carry onward into glory, take heart that somehow God is in the business of bringing beautiful things from terrible ones. But we do not always see how. Against all odds, the cross meant to kill is our victory. 
in the Revelation when the angels of heaven weep that there is none worthy to open the scroll that contains the greatest news the world will ever hear. It is Jesus who enters the throne room of heaven bearing the wounds that saved us. And that is when the cry goes up, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And uh, the early church martyrs who died for the cause of Christ, I've, I've read some of their works and I can say with some confidence that if on the day of the resurrection you offered to remove their scars, some of them would straight up choke you out. <laughs> Do not touch my crown, they would say. What you have lost will be restored, yes. And in some sense, in a great mystery, the marks on your body and soul you will carry on into glory, but none of it will remain untransformed. And if you carry pain in silence, speak it. To the God who loves you, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, cry out to God, do you remember me? Share your stories, unashamedly ask one another for prayer, and love one another as God in Christ has loved you. Lift up your eyes. I pray that you can see it. Amen. Oh Lord, you created us. You formed us. You have redeemed us and called us by name. We are yours. May we not fear, oh God. May we know that when we pass through the waters, you are with us. You are the Lord, our God, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. And yet by... For all that, by your grace, we are precious in your eyes. Precious and honored, and you love us. Lord, we thank you. And we await your return. Our hope, our consolation, our joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.